0: Uh, So, I want to begin, I'm not going to be preaching any one text in particular, but we will look at quite a few. I'd like to begin just by reading from Ephesians chapter 3, verse 14. If you have a Bible, you can feel free to turn there. We'll read this and then ask for the Lord's help, and uh, we'll get to work. This is Paul summing up the portion of his letter to the Ephesians where he's just been expounding the gospel. What is the gospel? Who is Christ? What is God doing in Christ? Who is this new humanity that he's making? And he, and he sums it up before moving into the, the section of a lot of application in the letter uh, with these words. This is the word of the living God, Ephesians 3.14. It says, For this reason I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and, earth and on earth is named, that according to the riches of his glory he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his Spirit in your inner being, and ever, Amen. Uh, thus ends the reading of God's word. May He write it on our hearts, and let's ask for His help together. Father, we do thank you this morning that you uh, have not left us uh, to our own devices. You haven't left us to to muddle our way through life and try to figure out these big uh, issues of uh, what we're for, uh, how to be for what we're for, how to be fathers and mothers and grandparents, and and your sons and daughters as well. We thank you for your word. And we do ask, Father, that you would give us each uh, hearts of humility to receive, that you would uh, just give us hearts that would come under your authority very humbly, that you would give us a a hermeneutic of surrender and and, and not suspicion with your word, and that you would, by it, shape us into the image of Christ through your spirit, uh, even even in our time today. pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. I love that text. We're going to look at it a little bit more later, but I just notice for now the way that Paul connects the fatherhood of God, this cosmic fatherhood of God to all of life, to all of the gospel, all of his love for us, all of his work in us and all of it. He, he, he points it upstream until he lands in the fatherhood of God. And so I want to keep that uh, over everything that we do today. All, all four of our sessions today are basically building on one another. What Jared uh, gave us this morning is a foundation. We're going to lay another stone on top of it and then move into motherhood and grandparenting. Each of these really complements each other. Uh, let me tell you what my aim really is in, in all of these uh, sessions today. And that's basically just to build a little bit of a skeleton for us. Obviously, in a day, we're not going to build out a philosophy and theology of motherhood, fatherhood, the Christian household in out to the edges, right? I mean, that's the work of a lifetime and multiple lifetimes, even as we see looking at this intergenerational work of God. Uh, but what I'd like to do is build out a, a skeleton that we could be able to see the edges of it, uh, of a certain kind of household. This, In, in our context, it's really a culturally abnormal, uh, intergenerational, sacrificial uh, I'm going to use the, word, the P word, patriarchal, eschatologically fruitful household. And the aim in building these kinds of households is that they would do what God has always been doing through households, which is turning 2 and 3 and 4 into 17 and 28 and 37 and 1500. That's what God's been doing with households from the very beginning. And he's been doing that, if we really trace the the theology of the family, he's been doing that so that by means of his grace operating in these households, he can do things like turning deserts and howling wastes into gardens and into cities and into flourishing communities and even to reach, as we're talking about this weekend, uh, the entire world. And I do believe, I agree with Jared, that the Christian household is one of the great means that God aims and intends to use to, uh, I'll use the words conquer and colonize the world. This is great commission kind of language, to go out and, and conquer and colonize the world with household as little seeds of uh, a new way of being human, uh, new new creational mankind. And so that, that's kind of a big thing to, for you to take my advice on. right? That's a, that's a little bit of a big thing. So I wanted to give you a few just, if there's forces tugging on the compass bearing of Brian Sauvey's life, theological kind of instincts and big presuppositions that I'm bringing here, I want those to be plain to you so you know who you're listening to, uh, since that seems to be uh, fair for you. So some of the big presuppositions that I'm bringing to this subject and really every subject as I open the Bible. Uh, number one, I'm tremendously optimistic about the future of Christ's church. Tremendously optimistic about the future of Christ's church. Uh, and of what God is building here through his church. This already-not-yet new heavens and new earth, this work that he's begun and and inaugurated in Christ, that he's building out. Think of the kingdom parables, that the kingdom of heaven is like leaven, that a woman hid in three measures of flour until it was all leavened. It's like a seed that was planted that grew up into a tree that covered the earth. I'm tremendously optimistic about the future of that process. Um, I don't believe, in light of God's, Uh, In Christ, death, burial, resurrection, ascension, enthronement, right now rule, his conquering, you know, Psalm 110, the most quoted Psalm in the Bible, the most quoted verse from the Old Testament in the New Testament, Psalm 110, uh, is this idea that the Father has enthroned the Son and right now what he's doing is he's uh, putting all of the enemies of the Son under his feet as a footstool. That's that's what we're seeing right now in history. Even though it takes the eyes of faith often to see it, Uh, and because of that, I'm really, really um, optimistic about the work of building fruitful Christian homes. Right, I'm very optimistic. I don't think that the work of building fruitful homes and aiming to build homes that are centers of Christian culture making is a wasted effort. Right, I don't think that our work of trying to be fathers and mothers that raise children that understand, uh, like Jared was saying both God's law and his gospel. How does God aim for us to live by his grace with new hearts? And what kind of culture does he aim to build through that? I don't think that work is anything like polishing brass on the Titanic with the iceberg on the horizon, right? That, that, that's kind of a popular view of Christian culture and history, that basically all we're doing here is we're really just, we want to make Christian souls now because, and not really worry much about you know, the world and the culture of the world Necessarily beyond that kind of spiritual domain, because there's an iceberg on the horizon. Things are generally going downhill. I don't. I don't believe that that's true. I believe God does intend to make disciples of the nations, and that He does intend to teach them to obey all Jesus commanded. Uh, my second big presupposition is that the Puritans got it largely right. So. Uh, I will throw it back to the 1600s, if you will. The Puritan vision for life was really deeply concerned, like Jared said, with God's gospel and with God's law, with this uh, warm-hearted obedience to Christ in every area of life, every single area of life. They wanted to push the, 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 the culture of Christ into the edges and the corners of their life. I mean, these were men and women who were building households where they didn't just want to know what is the gospel, they wanted to know what are the implications of the gospel for how I should read books and how I should make food and how I should, you know, structure my week and my day. And, and I believe that they got that very much right. And uh, one historian said that the Puritans' approach to Scripture, one of the fundamental th- reasons they got this right was that they approached Scripture with a hermeneutic of surrender and not skepticism. And so I believe we should do the same. We should aim to open the Bible understand it to the bottom, believe everything we find there, and obey it with all of our might uh, for our good. And then uh, lastly, I don't believe in light of those things that there is any such thing as neutrality in the cosmos that we live in. Uh, Like the Puritans, that we should not be aiming to try and figure out which parts of our lives are spiritual and and under the Lordship of Christ and which part of our lives are, are really neutral and kind of beside the point, but that we should really be asking I'm, I'm the subject of Jesus Christ. How does his lordship affect every square inch of my life? So those are some of the big ideas and big convictions that are really pulling on the needle of my compass. As I'm saying, where, should I, where am I aiming my life and where am I going to con- try to convince you to aim your fatherhood, your motherhood, your grandparenting? Those are some of the underlying uh, Convictions, and so really coming together—a short way of putting it—the uh, goal for these lectures, this, these sermons, whatever you want to call them, is to provoke you, uh, to provoke you to want the glory of Christian fatherhood, Christian motherhood, Christian grandparenting, so that we can make the kind of households that comes alongside God's mission to make the world God's household. Uh, so I'll I, I warn you right here up front: like these are the kind of subjects that. Just because of where we are in culture, some of the things that, that you end up saying if you do open the Bible, refuse to have any problem passages, believe the whole thing, and just read passages out loud in public, is that you end up saying things that may be offensive or provocative. And, and I want to say up front, I'm really anything I say this today, I'm not just trying to be provocative for the sake of being provocative. If I talk about like public school and birth control and you're like, "Whoa!" I'm not trying to be provocative for the sake of being provocative, but I would ask that we would together kind of back up, because you know it's so easy for us to get this lens of what is normal to us in the last two decades of our societal, broader societal culture, rather than backing up and saying, what would have been normal to my great-great-great-great-grandparents, especially my theological great-great-great-great-grandparents? What would have been normal to them? Because uh, our culture is actually kind of insane if you really look at it uh, through the lens of Scripture. So we're going to break uh, the, the household really into three parts, fatherhood, motherhood, and grandparenting. And, and I'm just going to take a, the same approach to all three, keep it very simple. And we're really just going to look at four things which e- with each of these offices, I'll call them, fatherhood, motherhood, and grandparenting. Uh, for each one, we'll try to see the glory of that office, the glory of fatherhood, glory of motherhood, glory of grandparenting. Uh, we'll, we'll, we'll turn to try to understand very practically the goal of that office. What does success look like? For fatherhood. What, what does success look like? So I can just aim at it. Look Very practically, I'm doing this, and success is actually this. I need to know that if I'm going to turn from this to this. So we want to know the goal of the office. Uh, we'll look with each of them at some of the counterfeits of it or the enemies of it. Some of the ways that we might think that we're uh, engaging in biblical or Christian motherhood, fatherhood, where we're actually living at a counterfeit. And then also we'll, we'll look finally with each at how the gospel relates to each of these offices because there are individual facets of the glory of the gospel that really shine in each of these. Uh, so let's start with the glory of fatherhood. And with each of these, uh, when, I, when I say glory, uh, that's, a, that's a very theological word that we can, can become meaningless. Like uh, there was, there, a lot of teenagers in my church say glory for lots of things like Taco Bell. Glory. Like <laughs> I got a chalupa. Glory. Like you 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 may want to find a different word. Okay, so what is glory like? What is it? What does the glory of fatherhood mean? Uh, and, and, and here's the definition I'm working with: the, the glory of a thing is the weighty goodness of that thing when it's doing what it was supposed to do. The glory of a thing is the weighty goodness of it when it's doing what it was supposed to do. That's the way often that scriptures speak of glory. Obviously, all things exist ultimately for the glory of God. And so when I say the glory of fatherhood, I'm not setting up a competing glory. These are all glories aimed at the same thing. But we have passages in scripture like 1 Corinthians 11 where Paul tells us that man is the glory of God and that woman is the glory of man. And so there's this sub-glory. There's a way of talking about glory that cedars are the glory of Lebanon, Isaiah says. We might say that in Utah the delicate arch is the glory of Utah. I don't know what the equivalent is in southern Illinois. Beef uh, from I look at deer hunting is the glory of southern Illinois from what I'm seeing and I am jealous of it. Uh, The glory of of a thing is the weighty goodness of it when it's doing what it's supposed to do. Fatherhood is, masculinity is, a glorious and potent thing. Masculinity is, fatherhood is, a glorious and potent thing. I want you to think about uh, one of the most common occurrences in human history, and that's one man ruining everything. It's one of the most historically commonplace events throughout history, whether you're talking about Western history, Eastern, wherever you go, whenever you go, you will find a man or a small group of men ruining everything, right? Um, Bringing unimaginable suffering and devastation into the world. Uh, By tyrannizing presence, so men who dominate and are harsh and use their strength not to serve the good, but use their strength to serve themselves at the cost of the good. Like we could look at everything from individual households with abusive fathers up to uh, dictators who have killed millions. That's the same story being played out on both stages. We could also say that men have done tremendous damage by their absence, right? Men are even potent. Fatherhood is even a potent thing when it's absent, just by its sheer absence, It changes everything around. When a father abdicates from his office, it changes everything in that household. And and it changes everything downstream to the left and the right. Changes things. Evil men, indifferent men, wounded men, uh, just do wield vast power in the shaping of our world past and present. And, and that's true of men in particular, but fatherhood is really just a force multiplier of, of masculinity. It's just giving that masculinity more people to influence, and really more powerful influence over those people. She, a father has tremendous influence over his children. Prisons are full of men who have ruined everything with the potency of their masculinity and their fatherhood. Think about men like Chris Watts, maybe you're not familiar with that name. This is a man in Colorado. He was sentenced within the last year for killing his pregnant wife and his two daughters so that he could run away with his coworker, whom he was having an adulterous relationship with. This is one man who has cut off. If we're not just thinking about the people that he that he killed, think about the future implications of killing two children downstream in history. I mean, he's he's killing tens of thousands of people, right? If we take a, a broader view of history. Scripture bears this out that when men fall into sin, we become not impotent, we remain powerful, but powerfully evil. We become a race of murderous Cain's, uh, womanizing Lamech. If you go, I'm just talking the first couple chapters in Genesis, uh, wicked Herod's, cowardly Pilate's. Think of the way that the single man ruining everything narrative has played out through even biblical history. A man is a profoundly dangerous thing when he goes wrong. And here's where we sometimes get this, get this wrong. We tend to even tacitly believe that when the Lord saves a man, he ought to cease being a dangerous thing and cease being a potent thing. And he actually, we believe that things like meekness in Matthew 5 and the meek will inherit the earth, we can take that and say, well, now men should step back from that. The power was what was wrong. The potency was what was wrong. That, the sin was tied up in that. That's not true. God made masculinity in general, and fatherhood, in particular, to be a gloriously potent, powerful, influential, world-shaping sort of thing, okay? And uh, I want you to think and ask the obvious question that we should be asking at this point, which is why? Why is fatherhood such a powerful thing? Why is it that way? And the answer is because, I think there are many answers, But the most fundamental answer is because of what fatherhood was made to be. What was fatherhood made to be? Fatherhood was made to be a miniature model. It was made to be a parable, kind of a three-dimensional living, breathing story, uh, shadow of something more real and more permanent, and that's the fatherhood of God. God is a father. God is not a mother. God God is a father. He's, He's not a mother. He reveals himself like we could say that God's pronouns are he, him. If you read the Bible, to make a joke that no one would have gotten ten years ago, uh, he's a father and not a mother, as we read in, in Ephesians three fourteen and fifteen. He is the father, and the, the Greek word is pater, uh, and, and it says from whom every family in heaven and earth is named. That that word family is just another shaping of that word pater. It's patria. He's the pater from whom every patria is named, in heaven and on earth. He is the father from whom every father-centered household. That's, that's the implication in heaven on earth. God's potent, glorious, cosmic fatherhood is what makes our earthly fatherhood, in a lowercase way, but still in a real way, a potent, glorious thing. Okay? Uh, God's fatherhood is weighty in its glory. It's the kind of weight. It has gravity. Things orbit around God's fatherhood, and so it is with earthly fathers. Uh, the 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 glory of our earthly fatherhood is just an echo of that. And so um, one of the things that I think that men need to hear, uh, especially in our culture today, and that you men need to hear, that I need to hear, that we need to really believe, is that being a man is a good thing. That it's a very, very deeply good thing. And that you have the potential to change whole communities. One of you does. You also have the power to screw everything up. So just know that. Like, you could really screw things up for this church, for example. One of you could probably kill this church. So, I mean, it's possible. The Lord's powerful. He's for it. I think He'd probably strike you down with the breath of His mouth. But <laughs> you have tremendous power. That's a good thing. Lean into that, embrace that. I wanna, again, I want to provoke you to want the glory of your office. To want that glory. To not view humility as kind of a a ceasing from desire as the Buddhists do. We're Christians. We're not Buddhists. We want glory. Sin was falling short of glory. It was uh, aiming and landing the, 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 the longing of our glory on lesser glories than God's ultimate glory. It wasn't a ceasing from the pursuit of glory. It was a pursuit of the wrong glory wrongly. I want you to pursue the right glory rightly. Okay, that's one of the goals this morning. So let's talk specifically about how that looks in fatherhood. The goal... Of fatherhood, uh, Our earthly fatherhood, again, is defined by God's cosmic fatherhood. This tells us quite a bit about what our earthly fatherhood is aimed at, what the goal, like, again, what does a goal mean? It means success in a thing. If we're just defining, kind of describing, what would successful Christian fatherhood look like, uh, we have to actually ask the question, what is God's cosmic fatherhood aimed at? Again, if our earthly fatherhood is uh, a little shadow, of that, we won't know what success looks like for the shadow if we don't know what God's aiming to do with his cosmic fatherhood. So, so let's ask that question. What is God's cosmic fatherhood aimed at? And we don't have to guess. Again, God's given us his word. He's spoken clearly in his scriptures. Hasn't left us blind in the dark. Uh, he is laboring to remake the cosmos in glory. That's what he's doing for his glory, in glory, by his Son, by his Spirit. That's what God's cosmic fatherhood is aimed at. Specifically with humanity, his image bearers, God's cosmic fatherhood. And and image bearers is where God's cosmic fatherhood lands, right? He is the father of families, humans in a particular way that he's not for creation, though he is the father of creation in a general sense. What God is laboring to do with his cosmic fatherhood is this, Ephesians 2.10. We are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works. We could look at 2 Corinthians 3.18, one of the most important passages in the New Testament. We all with unveiled face. Again, there's a veil that's been removed, talking covenantally between old and new covenant in this section of Scripture. We all with unveiled face beholding the glory of the Lord, the Lord Jesus, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. This comes from the Lord, who is spirit. What is God's fatherhood aimed at? It's remaking these fallen sons of Adam into the image of his perfect son. That's what he's doing with you. And he's guaranteed it. He's guaranteed it. He who began a good work in you will see it through to completion on the day of Christ Jesus. He's guaranteed it for his people. This is inevitably, inexorably where he's taking you if you're in Christ. This is the guarantee to such a degree that in Romans 8, which you've been in recently from what I hear, he could say that you've been glorified. Been glorified. That's where he's taking you is to glory. The Father is bent on bringing his sons and his children to glory. Okay, is it any wonder if that's what God's cosmic Father is aimed at? That Paul defines success for earthly fatherhood in Ephesians 6.4, the most important fatherhood verse in the, in the New Testament for, for earthly fathers, like this. Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. What is, what is God the Father aiming at? Bringing people up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. What is our earthly fatherhood aimed at? Look, it's the same thing. It's a lowercase. He, he's, he's, he has a bigger plate than us. So he's doing it with all of his sons across all of history and time and every ethno, every nation. Okay? We get like four. Four kids. Five. Hopefully, I have four now. Hoping, you know, naming and claiming uh, like ten more. Hoping to beat the duggers. I think we have time. Hoping that my wife's womb holds out. Don't tell her I any of that. Uh, Okay, we're to bring our children up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. Maybe you've heard this, maybe you haven't. This might be review, this might be new for some of you. Um, those, the words that we translate, this is a weird phrase in English, which is why you see it translated so many different ways in NASB, ESV, KJV, NKJV, NLT. This discipline and instruction phrase. It's two words in Greek. It's paideia and nuthesia, paideia and nuthesia. Okay, we have work to do to understand that, that a first century Ephesian did not. The first century Ephesian who heard the words paideia and euthesian of the Lord Jesus, they, in the Roman Empire, they they got it. They were like, oh, okay, I know what you're talking about. We have a little bit more work to do because we tend to take those two words and just deal with them in light of their English definitions. What does discipline mean? Well, I spank my kids. You know, I've read the Proverbs. I know how to do that. Instruction, okay, I teach them their catechism, their Sunday school lesson. I make sure they know the Bible, that sort of thing. Yes, it's that, but it's, 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 it's not less than that, but it's so, 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 so much more than that. The paideia and of the Lord are two Greek words that in that time and place communicated nothing short of the formation of a whole person. I mean, every aspect of what it means to be human is captured under that phrase. And, and, and they used to use that phrase, particularly the word paideia, to describe the formation of a very certain type of human being, and that was a Roman citizen. They, if, you, if you look up the word paideia in similar, uh, in similar time frame in Greek texts that we have today, you look at that word, you'll often find it related to the education and enculturation of Roman citizens. And the idea was that if you raised a child up in the paideia of Rome, they were a perfect Roman citizen. They were politically a Roman citizen, interpersonally a Roman citizen. They were a Roman citizen in their worldview. They were a Roman citizen religiously. They were a Roman citizen in every part of what it means to be human. We tend to take this the paideia of the Lord and think, okay, he's talking about our our religious self. He's talking about our Christian self, our doctrinal self, our theological self. It's not what he's talking about. He's talking about uh, raising our children up in every area of what it means to be human to look like the God Man Jesus, to be shaped after the perfect humanity of Jesus—that's what God in Christ is doing—is reestablishing a new humanity to look like the perfect man, the God Man Jesus. That's what He's doing with us. Um, if you really, there's, we could talk for way longer about that, which I won't. Um, if you understand those words and that charge and God's cosmic fatherhood and how it relates to our earthly fatherhood, one thing you will definitely know is that this is not something that fathers can passively hand off to others. It's not something that we can passively hand off to others. I don't mean we can't deploy others to help, but we can't passively hand off any part of this to others. Passive is the key word. Biblical fatherhood, Christian fatherhood, takes primal primary responsibility for the formation of our children into the culture and instruction of Christ seeing them shaped into the image of the Lord Jesus Christ in every part of what it means to be human, okay? So this is not merely a call to manage the what we might think of as the spiritual formation of our children. Uh, that's not a good word, I don't think, to use in the first place, but what we tend to think of as spiritual formation, this is not just teaching them their catechism. Uh, this is actually talking about everything from their religious and spiritual formation, their social and interpersonal relationship and formation, their philosophical and intellectual formation, what kind of presuppositions they approach the world? What's their, like to use a big word, what's their epistemology? How do, how do they arrive at truth? How do they know what's true and sift through truth claims that they're being bombarded with? That's in there. Their educational and worldview formation, their sexuality, rationality, spirituality, physicality, their work ethic, their political views. Uh, all of that is under your scope of authority as fathers. Biblical fatherhood has, is an umbrella that has all of that underneath Yet. And so, that makes it our responsibility. And what this precludes right off the bat is, is one of the foolish practices that many of us have witnessed firsthand in the last hundred years of the church, especially, it's a very, very common view in the last hundred years of the church, which is that it's adequate to send our children to Sunday school for an hour a week, um, maybe do some kind of Stuff in the home, some kind of intermittent stuff at the home, and then unthinkingly letting them learn how the rest of the entire world works, from government to politics to sexuality to everything else, math, science, everything, from some kind of non-Christian teacher, which we I will sum it up with I'll just say government school, state school, public school, and convincing ourselves that that's enough. And so I I really want to take a short excursion on education since I think is at the heart of our recent father failures. I think education is kind of at the heart of our recent father failures. Um, The reality that Jesus makes very clear in Luke 6.40 is that teachers don't leave their gods at the door when they go to instruct. And that the end result of a teacher, a successful teacher will be successful not just by teaching a subject but by replicating themselves. Jesus says that a disciple is not above his teacher, but everyone when he is fully trained will be like his teacher. Jesus says that. So we kind of can tend to think about education as fathers as a kind of neutral category where non-Christians and Christians are basically doing the same thing. We're learning a lot of this neutral body of knowledge about the world over here. And then as long as we have this kind of controlling spiritual body of knowledge over here, as long as we keep that straight where our spiritual body of knowledge is kind of in the driver's seat of this neutral body of knowledge, that we're doing okay. But the problem with that is that there is no such thing as a neutral body of knowledge. That's a myth. It doesn't exist. It doesn't exist. It's like trying to, you know, find a... uh, a flying unicorn out in the, the wildlands of southern Illinois. It just it doesn't exist. It's not a real thing. Proverbs 1 7 actually says that the fear of the Lord, finish this in your mind, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Okay, that's true, but guess what else it's the beginning of? Knowledge. That's right. Proverbs 1 7 tells us that the fear of Yahweh, the fear of the Lord, is the beginning of knowledge. What does that mean? The fear of the Lord is the beginning of rightly knowing things. To like word on the street version it. The, 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 the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowing things. This is why Paul could say, think about this audacious claim that Paul makes in Colossians. Uh, he says, his great aim for the church in his ministry is that they would reach all the riches of full assurance of understanding. And the knowledge of God's mystery, which is Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom. And knowledge, everything. Okay, so fathers, every single secret in the universe, like God is like a king, and Proverbs says the glory of kings is to, or the glory of God is to conceal things. The glory of kings is to search them out. Right, so God is like, he's giddy up in heaven. Like, he's hidden all these things, like how to make an iPhone processor. He's hidden that knowledge in the world. And the glory of kings is to go figure out how to turn sand, silicon, into an iPhone chip. That's part of the knowledge that's hidden in Christ. Every single secret of the universe, every fact, every truth, every data point, whether theological or mathematical or scientific or historical, every single data point is hidden In Jesus Christ, the Lord. Okay, what that means is that true, holistic, integrated knowledge is impossible for one who does not fear the Lord. You can know facts, but you don't know what to do with them. You don't know how to hang them into a coherent view of reality. Think about the implications of that for our children. For people who we're teaching, we're sending them to teach them. That we're basically saying, when we send our children to somebody to teach them, we're saying, I want you to make my child like you. I want you to replicate your worldview. I want you to replicate not just this data point about science and logic and math or whatever rhetoric in my child. I actually want you to teach them how to hang that data point on reality in a worldview. That's what education fundamentally is. That's what education fundamentally is. Um, But the problem is that a non-Christian can know facts, but they can't know things truly. All of the facts for a non-Christian are basically floating around in midair. So there's this antithesis between uh, the Christian and non-Christian understanding of everything, and it doesn't evaporate when you leave the catechism, right? It doesn't evaporate. That antithesis that exists religiously with statements like, Jesus is God and Vishnu is not, it's a spiritual religious claim, there's an antithesis there. You see, there's, there are odds only one can be true. That antithesis doesn't go away when we get to the statement 2 plus 2 equals 4. Why does 2 plus 2 equal 4? A Christian answer is because Jesus is the Lord. Because Jesus made a, a rational cosmos. He created everything. By him and for him, all things were made, including math, including history, including logic. Uh, so, I don't want to go on forever, so I'm going, to, uh, I'm going to jump a little bit. Let me sum it up a little bit. But what this means is that part of the work of discipling our children then is making sure that we're bringing every fact into orbit around the Lordship of Jesus, relating everything to the Lordship of Jesus. So uh, let's, let's get particular with uh, instruction, because what I'm not saying is that there's no possible way to use public school. I'm not saying, that it's, it's a very weighty thing to say something's a sin, okay? Part of the Pharisees' problem was that they kept saying that things were sins that God didn't say were sins. So I'm not saying, like, sending your kids to public school is a sin. What I am saying is that unthinkingly, passively employing teachers to instruct your children in what they know about everything, without actively managing that, as a father, is a sin. And it's, it's, it's one of the abiding sins of our cultural moment. Because we've bought that lie of neutrality. Because we've bought that lie of neutrality, we think that we can employ just anybody to teach the neutral body, so long as we control the spiritual body. That's not true. It's more of an integrated whole. where at the center is Jesus, the, the Lord Jesus, the fatherhood of God, and all of the facts orbit around him. And so whatever method of education you choose, Make sure that you're choosing that method of education with uh, serious, serious thought, serious care, taking great care in who you're employing to educate your children. Let me sum it up again, though. The the goal of earthly fatherhood, we could give many more goals, but the primal goal in our earthly fatherhood is this world-shaping power of raising up our children to, in every aspect of their humanity, image the Lord Jesus. That's our goal, and it captures every part of of their life, so much more we could say, and I think we'll unpack this goal of fatherhood a little bit more as we look at some of the counterfeits. Sometimes it's really helpful to understand what a thing is to see what it's not. So let's talk about some counterfeits of this authentic Christian fatherhood, um, and there are three that that we'll look at because Paul actually does give us one in Ephesians six four. He teaches that way. He contrasts biblical fatherhood with non-biblical fatherhood, Christian fatherhood with non-Christian fatherhood. One kind of fatherhood is a kind of fatherhood that provokes children to wrath. And then the other kind of fatherhood is a kind of fatherhood that raises them up in the paideia and the nuthesia of the Lord. And he says, don't do that first kind, do the second. That's a counterfeit of Christian fatherhood. Uh, it, all of these are actually a really good way of making raising our children up to uh, provoking them to wrath all these counterfeits are really good ways of provoking them to wrath the, the, the first counterfeit is this kind of perfectionist and this is actually often the guy that takes very seriously everything i said for the last 20 minutes he takes very seriously worldview education all these things he's like ah, i gotta make sure my kids understand the lordship of jesus christ when it comes to cell mitosis and so it's like good br- good dude that's really important I- i'm with you on that, But I, I'm particularly concerned with becoming this kind of man myself, particularly concerned for any congregation or church that does take this seriously, like your congregation, your church, takes these things very seriously already. Before I said anything, you guys already did take these things seriously. So one of the, one of the ditches that we can fall in is uh, making the goal of our fatherhood, the first goal of our fatherhood, to make children who have a really good education, who know their Bible inside, inside out, who have a worldview to make Cornelius Van Til proud, as the most important possible thing. Those are all really good downstream things, but our first goal, our first goal with our children in raising them up in the Paideia and the Nuthesia of the Lord Jesus is to win their heart and win their heart to my earthly fatherhood so that passing through my earthly fatherhood, their heart could be one of the cosmic fatherhood of the Father, right? The first goal with our children is not to make children who outwardly look a certain way but children who inwardly love God. Love you as a father first, that's essential, and love God. This is one of my favorite, just, I preached Proverbs recently at, at my church, and uh, made, you know a lot of people left, it was a lot of fun, because uh, <laughs> we talked about money and sex and parenting and kids and fatherhood and masculinity and femininity. It was, it was a lot of fun. Uh, one of the, 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 the half sentences from the book of Proverbs that has just stuck with me from Proverbs 23 is related to this. Where Solomon says, my son, give me your heart. My son, give me your heart. He's been going on for 22 plus chapters at this point. My son, do this, do that, pursue lady wisdom, uh, pursue money this way, sex this way, don't do that, don't go here, think about business like this, don't get in with these kind of friends, don't do justice this way, do justice this way. And then and he kind of backs up in chapter 23 and he says, wait, my son, give me your heart, give me your heart. The goal of the Fatherhood of God is not first to make men who are exteriorly conformed to his holy law, but to make men who inwardly love his holy law. Okay, that's the new the the, the sinequa known of the new covenant is the internalization of the law of God. Where God takes what was written on tablets of stone, he takes out our heart of stone, and he puts in a heart of flesh with that Torah, his law written on it. And he says, I'll put my spirit in you and I'll cause you to walk in my ways, which is now written on your heart. Okay, what is God doing in the new covenant through Christ? He's making men who aren't dead, but who are alive. And what does it mean to be alive? It means men who actually love the good. They love God. They love God's law. Our goal isn't to be perfectionist bent on mere obedience. Our goal is to make children who love God. Uh, This is why we need to be very careful when we begin to think through these things that we don't implement like a a program that looks kind of like a um, a concentration camp for our kids where where the day becomes just like, I'm going to see how much worldview I can get in you by 3 (laughs) p.m. He's four. Calm down. He needs to go outside. You need to tickle him. <laughs> That's, make sure that you tickle your kids too, you know. Maybe not if they're 17, but if you have a four year old, <laughs> include tickling, okay? Include tickling and candy and win their hearts. Fathers, you have, they want, they want to love you. They want to be children whose hearts you have won. That was a weird sentence. They want that, they do. Even naughty kids, what they're doing a lot of times, naughty kids are pushing against the boundaries to see if you love them. Oh, if I hit this hard enough, will someone come get me and take me home and, and give me a spanking and a nap because they love me? This is why the, the, the fatherhood of God is connected to two things over and over in the New Testament and the old, it's discipline and love. Discipline and love. I discipline those whom I love. I don't discipline those whom I don't love. You're, you're, you are, are there children in the room? Like the, literally the idea is you are a bastard son if you're not disciplined, but you're a true son if you're disciplined. Okay, So we, want to be, we don't want to be perfectionists. We don't want to be, number two, bullies. Um, we don't want to teach our children to love the Father or aim to teach our children to love the Father by being angry, bitter, loud, controlling, abusive. Harsh, uh, man, I have been this dad way too often. Because kids come into the world, and the first thing they do is they smash up all your idols. All of the, the, the idols that are on low shelves in your life, they just smash them up. They're really good at that. They're designed to do that by God, is to come in and just heat-seeking, what is the most important object in this room to my father? It's his guitar, isn't it? I'm gonna put baloney in it. It's like I love how Jared was. Jared was saying when you open the Bible, what you see is you know children everywhere, and I kept I kept thinking like, yeah, I mean, like there's the stale Cheerio under Exodus, and there's the scribbling in Deuteronomy. It's like children everywhere. Uh, good dads know to control their own emotions uh, and, and worship God and not. Worship idols. If we worship idols, we'll be bullies because we'll, we'll hate our kids because they, they're killing our real God. We, we will not win their hearts if we're easily provoked and frustrated. A man without self-control is like a city without walls. He's easily plundered by three-year-olds. A three-year-old can plunder your city if it doesn't have walls. Uh, and lastly is the sluggard. I think this is another big, big, there's more we could talk about. But these are the big three, the perfectionist, the bully, and the sluggard. The sluggard just doesn't take responsibility for educating, uh, discipling, training, correcting, enjoying his children. He would rather other people do it for him. Okay, he would rather uh, technology do it for him. He's like, you know, if I could just pacify my children with the binky of an iPad, for a couple hours a day, that they would just leave me alone so I could do glorious things like read a book. You know, this is, this is one of the, 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 worst and the worst counterfeits of God's cosmic fatherhood. He's not a sluggard. God is active. He's there. He's everywhere. He's over everything. To the point where we're really frustrated, because he doesn't let us get away with stuff we'd really like to get. It. Discipline, love, like we're going, ah, I'm going to get my idol. And then God's like, smash, on your face, spanking, nap. Get back up. Okay, keep going. God's not a passive father. Passivity is one of the abiding sins of our our culture. Uh, One of the abiding ways of neutering masculinity in our culture is by encouraging passivity. Uh, I'll make you a wage slave at a factory instead of a man who takes responsibility. Our whole culture from the Industrial Revolution is designed to, to make men with low testosterone who don't have ambitious goals, who don't take responsibility. It's working. It's working very well. Our whole culture is kind of engineered to do this. That's what I said about offensive things. Uh, So lastly, I hope you feel kind of a weight settling on your shoulders when we think about these things rightly. If if you don't feel a weight settling on your shoulders when you think about Christian fatherhood, you're not thinking about Christian fatherhood. You're thinking about something else, or you're thinking about some tiny part of it. This is massive. Like we, We are not sufficient for these things. right? We're just not. We can't do it. We, when you make eye contact with this task, the first thing you do is you go, shoot, I'm in trouble because I am not, I am all three of those counterfeits by Wednesday every week. It's like, so what do we do? So I want to end thinking about the gospel and fatherhood for a minute or two, uh, and, and really with, with two thoughts. And the first is that we, we need to remember the lesson of the man who wrote the parenting book in the Bible, Okay, we need to remember the lesson of the man who wrote the parenting book in the Bible. I'm talking about Proverbs. Proverbs is a lot of things, but one way to simplify your understanding of the book is just to think this. Deuteronomy 6 says to do what Jared said it did, to fathers particularly. Solomon is king, raising royal sons to rule the nation. And what he aims to do through Proverbs, lots of commentators agree, is he's trying to obey Deuteronomy 6 by teaching his sons to love the law and see how it works itself out in wisdom in every area of life. It's a father training sons. That's what Proverbs is. It's a parenting book at its heart. It's all aimed at sons from a father. Okay, we need to remember the lesson of the man who wrote the parenting book in the Bible. The wisest man of his time, blessed with supernatural wisdom, a masterwork of wisdom for life that could still teach you more than Jordan Peterson on meth. Like It is so much better than any self-help book that you will find. Okay? But there's a deep contradiction at the heart of the Proverbs. And it's a contradiction between the words and the works of Solomon. Because his words were very wise, but his works were a dumpster fire. He was an absolute fool. He was a bigger fool than any of us will probably ever hope to achieve in our lifetime. Okay, this is a man who wrote a book that's largely dedicated to avoiding bad sex and pursuing good sex. in mar- Married good sex, don't do bad sex. Don't go down the prostitute's house. That's bad sex, son. Don't go there. That guy, with the same hands he wrote the book, took hold of 1,000 sexual partners. 1,000. Okay, I mean, he's making these game guys on Twitter that are in the red pill masculinity movement look like children. A 1,000 sexual partners. Uh, This is a man who wrote about how to uh, basically deal with money. And he systematically violated all of God's laws for kings with respect to money. God said, don't store up horses and gold and all this stuff. And Solomon said, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to store up horses and gold and all that stuff. 777 or 666 talents a year. The guy who wrote the book on raising boys to be godly men happens to be the father of Rehoboam. I don't know if you've read about Rehoboam. Not a good kid. Not a good kid. This is the son who promptly divided the kingdom as soon as he got authority into the northern and southern kingdoms of Israel. Okay, so his words and works are at war with each other. Why? Did God actually, like, accidentally get the parenting book written by an idiot? No, By a fool? No. No, he didn't. Because what God aims to do with Proverbs, I'm convinced of this, is to provoke us for our need of the one who is greater than Solomon. That's so what Jesus said. What, you know, People came, the queen of Sheba came from the south to hear the wisdom of Solomon and sit at his table. But I tell you the truth, something greater than Solomon is here. A man who is not just wise, he's the one in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. He's not just the man who's wise, but guess what? He actually lives out his wisdom perfectly in his life. Jesus is wisdom incarnate. He's the Logos, the word of God, the wisdom of God, the law of God in a human life incarnate. Okay, so we need, to, we need to remember Solomon and let his failure provoke us to the better Solomon. And lastly, we need to remember, just very briefly, that you are a son before you're a father and that your father is, is very good. Okay, remember the prodigal son. The son squanders his inheritance, leaves, and he, he goes to come back to his father, his good father. And it's not even like any spiritual reason that leads him to want to go back. He's just hungry. He's like, I'll just go be a slave of my dad. And he comes back to his dad, and you, you, you know the picture. This, this, this stately man running and, and kissing his son and putting a ring on his finger and killing the fatted calf. That God's not, like, If you're a bad father, God's not waiting for you to pay back all the squandered years. He's not going, oh, you know what, you did really good this week. You, you did your, your family worship this week. But don't you remember in 2007, that week, that you really screwed up? You haven't quite paid that back yet. No, that's not, that's not our father. Our father is a good father who actually sent his son, the perfect older brother, by the way, not the one pouting outside the party, the perfect older brother. He sent him to die to ransom you. That's the kind of father that we have. So you're a son before you're a father. Don't try to be a father without being a son. Don't try to be a good father without being a son of the father, without looking to him daily. It, Drawing a straight line in your mind and your heart between God's cosmic fatherhood and every aspect of your earthly fatherhood. Uh, God's not a miser.